This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, psychologist Aileen Barrera joins psychiatrist Stephen Chan to explore how advances in technology and artificial intelligence are changing the way we seek and provide mental health care. This event was recorded on May 17, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you for being here, everyone. You know, it's it's uh, such a fascinating time uh, to be here with a lot of uh, promise for uh, mental health and changing uh, the way we practice and changing the way we treat uh, folks. But um, this is actually not a new time. I think this uh, a lot of the technologies have have been around um, telephone uh, technologies, um, com- personal computers, the internet, um, and I think what we were thinking about uh, was talking a little bit about some of the history behind mental health technologies. Yeah, yeah, we thought that we could start off by giving you a little bit of context of where this has all come from. Um, I think that right now we're all thinking about, you know, technology as a recent innovation, but it actually has been around. If you think about your telephone um, and how it has been used previously for mental health. So in the earlier days of using technology for mental health, it really was uh, telephone-assisted psychotherapy or Um, phone call reminders, which many of you still get probably about your appointments, Um, computer-based when we used to only access um, digital material on desktop computers. Um, And a lot of that work really is what started off um, where technology is now. So really thinking about more effective or uh, widespread use of um, tools that could really deliver resources to more people in a cost-efficient kind of way. Over the course of the years, that has really translated into the use of the internet, um, which really is, I think, in the late 90s where it really began and really began to take off, you know, really delivering or designing evidence-based or traditional psychotherapy principles into an internet intervention and delivering those either in person um, as guided or unguided where an individual might access it individually without the assistance of a health provider or a peer counselor or someone like that. And more recently, just really translating into where we are currently in terms of how we as a society use technology. So mobile devices have really skyrocketed in terms of how we access um, information, how we use it, how we reach people. Um, I'm sure that everyone in this room probably has at least one device on them, maybe two, and maybe some of you even three, definitely have a lot more at home. Um, And that's really how mental health is continuing to develop. You know, how do we bring um, resources to communities, to individual individuals in the way that we're using technology. And I'd love to hear about some of the work that you're doing, which is taking it to the next level. What uh, I think that there have been so many different um, technologies, apps. Um, now we've got virtual reality headsets that are in the mainstream, smartwatches as well, uh, wearable devices that um, I actually think that um, for folks who are starting off in the space can be very sort of overwhelming to where, where do I turn to uh, initially. So uh, 
some of my colleagues and I have been looking at uh, which of these apps to start off with can can be uh, uh, the most appropriate to use. Um, a lot of apps are, for instance, on the app stores, Google Play and uh, the Apple App Store for iOS. Um, and uh, you know, developers can publish these apps without having to go through any sort of clinical validation. So what we're, one of the missions that we have, um, at least at the American Psychiatric Association, has been to publish how we can evaluate the apps that are out there. Some of the apps are really useful. They um, really help people if they say sleep, insomnia, through cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. And then some uh, apps are actually more joke apps, humor apps that claim to have a purpose such as reducing alcohol uh, use, when in fact uh, they may actually promote more dangerous behaviors. So that's one thing that we've been looking at. Um, uh, uh, and another thing that we've been working on too uh, with the group at UC Davis, is, uh, U which is the University of California Davis, located in Sacramento, California, um, is this concept of asynchronous telepsychiatry. Asynchronous means that it's uh, not at the same time. So if you've ever seen a video chat with another person, uh, such as through Skype or Google Hangouts or Duo, um, then those are, are synchronous. Video, con video conferencing technologies. But what we're doing is we're capturing video and sending it off to a psychiatrist later on to then sort of diagnose and uh, assess and integrate that information with lab tests, imaging, uh, things from the electronic health record system, and then come up with some sort of plan for a primary care uh, physician to implement, so or primary care provider. So that's one thing that we've been looking at uh, at UC Davis. Um, and then at UCSF, I've been uh, helping out more with how we can improve the electronic health record systems. Because if you think about the EHR, electronic health record systems, that's the platform that all information goes into. Anything that has to do with patient communication, uh, doctor communication, labs, imaging, notes, all of it is, uh, fits into this electronic health record system. How can we use that system to provide better care uh, and pr push information out to, say, patients at the right time and to um, providers at the right time, too? So that, those are some of the things that we've been looking at. Yeah, and, and I think those are all really relevant for anyone working in a system, right, or in a, a healthcare system, per se. Can you say... Um, much about how individual providers might be, and even patients potentially, might be able to interact with those systems or how they're impacted by these larger systemic changes using technology for care. One of the, one of the biggest, uh, I think, opportunities has been um, to be able to um, gr uh, store your notes and, or look at the notes that are being uh, written by providers and seeing all the lab results, the imaging. One of the requirements for electronic health records has been actually this concept of a patient portal where you can go online and access all the information that, uh, that has been uh, created by the health system. So that's one way that folks are being able to sort of you know, empower themselves and get, grab that knowledge. Um, I think the next generation will be um, apps and uh, other methods of communication uh, where you can actually talk to 
uh, your provider, uh, which is implemented partially in some systems um, through asynchronous messaging, just like email-like messaging through a secure channel. Um, but um, I know some larger health systems like Kaiser, uh, and it has already implemented things like video visits at home, and uh, uh, I believe Stanford Healthcare has that as well. Yeah, I, I think those are really helpful. I'm, I'm curious about how um, patients have actually received it and are they receptive to it? Because I think one of the challenges of using technology in mental health is that uh, mental health has always been a very one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, personal care, right? So if you think of psychotherapy, traditionally it's you and your psychotherapist. Um, in the same room, right? So, and often when technology is integrated, you may still be in the same room and may be accessing technology together, but some of the ideas behind technology is to not necessarily remove the individual from the equation, but to facilitate the delivery of services through the use of technology, which may put some space, right, between you and the client or the, the patient and the physician. So how are they receiving? Yeah, that? I mean, I, I think that some I don't have I don't have exact statistics, but my uh, from my anecdotally talking with uh, folks who uh, and colleagues who are receiving these services, um, they love it. They actually love seeing things like seeing their um, sort of their progress tracked over time, uh, seeing their uh, being able to uh, journal uh, uh, in between sessions. Um, There's a gentleman uh, actually who spoke on about this uh, at Hack Mental Health here at this venue uh, earlier this year. Um, and I think that um, there, for, for, especially for video visits, uh, we've seen, uh, in, especially in sensitive encounters, where a person is not typically comfortable talking with, say, a male provider, say, that they are able to talk more about their anxiety or, say, their um, trauma, uh, say, if they've uh, sustained some sort of um, uh, trauma from a, uh, interpersonal violence. They're able to more comfortably talk about that because there's some physical distance. There's more virtual space in between. Um, and I think also being able to uh, engage with uh, folks remotely, especially in rural areas where uh, there just aren't the level of services that uh, they deserve to have, um, it, it, they, they actually feel good about being able to see um, uh, see somebody um, quicker and without having to drive too far. So I think that they appreciate, a lot of folks appreciate the convenience. But again, like as you mentioned, uh, it's not in person and it doesn't have that same sort of like fidelity where you can um, say, um, see, see them and uh, see their movements or see their hand movements, uh, say, or uh, be able to sort of um, engage all your senses. Say, what has your experience been like for uh, these interventions in, uh, in 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 your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in my experience, the way that I see technology as being a tool, right, to to aid in the delivery of psychological interventions or resources or information, is really as a way to break down some of the barriers. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, we all would prefer to have a human being sitting next to us, helping us get through some of those really difficult situations. But in many communities, like the one that you mentioned in terms of rural communities, for example, or in underserved communities where there aren't providers who are culturally aware, trained, uh, linguistically capable of providing the services or because of resources or just there's nobody, 
right? And so in some ways, it can really help break down some of those barriers to access to care and provide the resources. And for some individuals, and there's data to support this, is that being able to communicate through a, a digital device in whatever format it is can help someone feel more comfortable, right, to be able to acknowledge or to accept or discuss topics that have been difficult to them previously. So in my experience, it has been helpful in that I'm able to reach a lot more individuals, um, and even individuals that you know perhaps didn't know that they wanted or needed or could benefit from psychological resources. And so one example that I have for my own work is um, many years ago, uh, one of the first things that I did using technology was to take a prevention of postpartum depression manualized treatment developed at you know the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital originally and to adapt it to an online platform and to make it um, I mean it's very early age internet intervention so it was essentially PDFs you know online and you know we didn't know if anyone was going to be interested in it at all so I put it together and I put it online and you know over the course of three years um, I think it was like 17,000 women completed eligibility criteria, right? So, and we didn't target like, hey, are you pregnant and depressed? Come to this study. We didn't do that at all. We just said, this is an online course if you're interested in learning skills to reduce um, your risk for, you know, depression or anxiety after your baby is born. And, you know, lots of women screened from all over the world and 17,000 were eligible to participate. And the eligibility criteria weren't, um, very complicated or a lot. I mean, it, they just had to be women, pregnant, and interested in learning skills, and that was pretty much it. What was interesting to me about that is um, I did a follow-up study where I looked at how did these women actually arrive to the site? Like, what keywords did they put into Google? Because that was our main um, recruitment tool. What keywords did they put into Google to um, get, get to the site, you know, as a way to learn how to recruit more women or to attract more women? And what was really interesting to me is that a majority of them did not put in pregnant, did not put in um, sadness, or, or even the more technical terms of postpartum depression. They just put in information like health and baby, um, you know, questions or keywords, rather, that really had very little, although somewhat related to the topic of the course, um, and yet they arrived screened and were eligible and, and for the most part participated. So to me, I think that that was a, a miss, that, that's potentially a missed opportunity, right? So there's women who are seeking information, and if we are able to develop it um, using um, resources that are based on data, for example, you mentioned that earlier, you know, having some empirical background for the materials that are being developed and being so readily accessible to different communities, then, you know, we might be able to help reduce some of the disparities that we see in mental health. So yeah, yeah. that was kind of a long tangent there. But, I mean, no, I think it was fantastic. just really interesting just to see that, you know, you can create these things. And, you know, I'm not an engineer, so they weren't, you know, sophisticated or super engaging or used very um, technical, you know, really cutting-edge technology. But to me, it just says that this is an avenue or this is a, um, a pathway to reach individuals who might be seeking information and how can we provide that information in a way that's you know easily accessible and and I, mean, I think the one of the biggest uh, things that you've worked on in your in your uh, work has been access and so I actually uh, uh, what was interesting about what you had mentioned um, in a way you you said that these were just PDFs on a website but 
PDFs are so universal and they are so widely accessible that actually that may that that it, I, I I would argue that it was the best technology to use. Uh, and so as a technology delivery system, I think a lot of us, especially when you look at um, industry reports, news reports, they say flashy things like, oh, we've got these new sensors or wearables. Actually, sometimes that might not be the best solution to, to uh, deliver uh, uh, healthcare or improve access. It could be actually um, PDFs on a website. Remind, reminded me of, of um, my past work where I... Um, this doesn't see this here is myself. I'm I'm dumpling what I'm about to say, but we worked on voice user interfaces. Does that sound familiar? Those voice menus, uh, where you pick up the phone and then you say things, you, and then you hear a voice that says, "Say weather" or "Say news," and and you say you say. Um, operator to get to the operator, human operator. I say that a lot. You say that <laughs> press zero, and then you can and cut straight through. So that was in 2005, 2006, that I was helping out with those technologies. And then the iPhone came. And then apps were the rage. No one cared about voice menus. Now suddenly we have these assistants, these uh, Google Home and Amazon Alexa. Um, and suddenly the cycle con comes back uh, where people are now using those voice interfaces. Um, but what struck me too was, um, uh, about what you had said was, um, you know, coming coming back to that theme of access, you mentioned um, um, that you've worked with uh, folks who uh, don't speak the same language. There's a linguistic barrier. And um, what kind of things have you um, worked on or what kind of difficulties do you find people are, f are faced with um, ling language and not being able to speak the same language? What is that like? Yeah, well, it's really frustrating <laughs> for sure, right? Because... You know, I think, I mean, so for example, I work with a lot of Spanish-speaking uh, patient populations, right? And, you know, when I've been able to provide resources in Spanish, so, you know, whether it's a text messaging program that's delivering tips, you know, that's kind of how I frame them, but all these tips are based on cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, techniques. And the feedback that I often get from the Spanish speakers in these projects is, thank you for having something in my language, right? So, you know, at the, at the most basic level, all we have to do is translate it, right? So it's not perfect. Um, it's not, you know, best practices necessarily, but it, just to be able to have something in the language. And if you are in an agency or in an organization where you don't have somebody who speaks the language of your target population, you know, whatever it might be, it may not be Spanish, it may be something that's less common in wherever you're at, you know, that could be the easiest way to do that. And, and patient populations are so appreciative to have information. There's so many instances where language is a barrier. You know, when I was providing psychological care at San Francisco General Hospital, a lot of patients would get referred to me from their primary care physicians. and you know, the first question I used to ask is, do you know why you're here? Um, and the reason I started asking that question is because I would often get questions like, so am I going to get my cortisol shot today? Um, oh, they didn't wow. know why they were here. And I could never figure it out. It was always a project that I wanted to do. It's like, was it that you just don't know what psychology is or how psychological services are helpful? Yeah. Or is it that no one told you what it was or that you didn't understand what it was. You know what I mean? So uh, like, so I think yes. to not have 
services in your language is extremely frustrating um, for a lot of people. You know, if you've ever been in a foreign country and you're really hungry, you know, oh, you yes. just can't order your sandwich. <laughs> or need um, to find the restroom. The restroom, too. <laughs> yeah, you know. So, so I think that you know, technology is a way that we can try to break down that barrier, and because we can develop things in that language, and you don't necessarily need to have. An actual human, although that's often preferred, but you don't have to have a human. You can have it available in that language, and you're crossing lots of, you know, check, checking off lots, you know, boxes here and there. Well, I can just imagine, though, if you, um, you know, my, my background, my my uh, my grandmother, one one of my, gra uh, my grandmothers spoke Indonesian, Bahasa Indonesian, and the, uh, and Mandarin too. But those were their two languages, and so uh, it would have been wonderful if she was able to. Uh, she were able to sort of access those resources. This was um, before we had fast internet. Um, shows you how old I am. But um, the you know the the thought of being able to access uh, not just text messages, but maybe even be able to route to a provider or a psychologist or a, a therapist who can speak the same language. That's just way more powerful than at the moment. I think the the standard is. Um, uh, at least in the medical setting, is to use a live in-person interpreter, which, you know, that's the gold standard, but it's not always available um, to us. Um, so, for instance, if I'm in the emergency department and I'm trying to uh, uh, communicate with somebody uh, who speaks a different language, I'd request for a live interpreter, and I'd have to schedule it hours in advance because they are just so, they're, they're so busy. And if the live interpreter weren't available, is a phone interpreter available or an iPad, some, uh, 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 an interpreter through video chat? But you lose so much, uh, I would say you'd lose so much um, information uh, if you just used a phone interpreter or um, a, uh, a, a video interpreter. And not only that, but it's not a very good experience for um, the folks who are coming to us for help. And, and so the best possible experience, especially for discussing sensitive subjects or, or um, for, say, detecting cognitive issues, um, you want to have somebody who can speak the same language. So I think that these technologies are, are terrific for that underserved market, I would say. Um, so, so then, so you have had text messages uh, pushed out. Um, and one thing I was wondering too is, um, you know, you've worked on. Uh, it sounds like we've both worked on uh, a lot of research uh, platforms and research uh, products, uh, uh, things that people use in a research setting. Um, do you find that that sometimes gets um, pu pushed to the uh, consumer market, where con uh, where folks don't have to be enrolled in a research trial? But uh, they can download that from, um, and then App Store or you know purchase that product. Is there, because for me I'm not finding a whole as much of an overlap right. yet between those two spheres, um, but maybe I'm missing something. I don't so. think you're missing anything, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's one of the challenges of um, the marriage of these two different um, fields, right? Yeah. So there's mental health and then there's technology. And the two fields um, fields function very differently, right? So, currently, you know, developing technology-based um, 
mental health resources, predominantly apps, is kind of a hot thing to do. It's from what I could tell. Maybe I just think it's I'm biased because I'm a mental health provider, but it's kind of a hot thing to do. Um, and and I think as well in the research arena, it is kind of innovative to use technology and especially more um, cutting edge, more recent technology, you know, like text messaging is like, meh, we've done that already. Internet, meh, we've done that. But if you're gonna use these GPS systems or, you know, sensor, you know, physiological sensory tools, you know, I'm not using the right terminology, but no, I you know that's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then that's yeah. really innovative. Yeah. But I think what the challenge is is that um, we're all functioning somewhat independently and under different guidelines. And so what we end up seeing is that in the field that I'm in, you know, we have people like myself who are not engineers, um, but are trained clinical psychologists who are aware of different behavioral changes and, you know, different interventions and knowing how to evaluate the evidence and adapt it and implement it, trying to use what the other field is expert at, right? And on the other side, you have engineers and technology companies really developing and the rules that govern our fields are very different, you know. So in the mental health, we have a lot of regulations, rightfully so, and a lot of guidelines. And those guidelines, for better or for worse, usually for better because they're often to protect people, really slows down the dissemination and the implementation of these technological tools that could be beneficial. Now, the, the upside of that is that we're able to um, build evidence, right? We can say, this text messaging, this app, this whatever we developed works, and this is how it's going to work, and this is for who it's going to work for, and under these settings. On the other side, you know, on the technology side, they're not often held to those same standards, right? And what we end up finding is that in, on that side, the technology side, those things are much better looking than whatever psychologists can <laughs> yes. you know, develop, right? <laughs> or, much you know, more engaging. In, in academics, yeah, yeah I would say, yeah. yeah. It, it, and so people are drawn to those things, right? On the other side, where it's like, well, it's PDFs, but it works, you know? Yeah. So so it, it's kind of a challenge, you know, as a two different fields, you know, I think we're starting to work together more. Um, I think that there are a number of academic institutions that um, have built institutes to, to kind of bring together, to marriage both of those fields, to try to build things that are engaging, cutting edge, interesting, innovative, and that also have some empirical um, evidence to support the effectiveness of it. But I don't, I don't think it's a perfect union just yet. It's, so. it's, it's such a burgeoning area. Uh, you, you mentioned those silos where um, computer scientists are creating their own sort of um, uh, algorithms and, and uh, machine learning. Machine learning is where you, the computer just kind of learns the patterns on its own without you having to tell it directly those rules. Um, and they, they're able to sort of do things like emotion sensing and, and uh, facial recognition, emotional sensing, and sensing from the text that you provide it, your pitch, your volume, um, whether you're monotone or not, um, the kind of words you're using, even for things like um, uh, seeing if you are, are potentially at a risk for cognitive decline based on the words that you're choosing. It's, it's really interesting. And then um, I, I'm seeing a lot of computer scientists 
who are uh, doing more in uh, with clinical informatics and medical informatics, that realm, but then they don't necessarily consult or they don't know where to turn to in the mental health realm um, you know, uh, for, for that clinical guidance. I don't think that that's exclusive to mental health. I see this in physical health too, where we have um, people who are so such experts, data scientists, uh, going through um, a lot of these records for physical health conditions, but they can't make sense of it because they don't have the clinical context. Um, does this white blood cell count mean that you have an infection or a fever, or was it because you took a medication that spiked it? Things like that. So it, it's interesting, um, and ideally you'd have one hub or one place where everyone can share ideas, but I think that if we're um, in our silos, it's, it's, it's tempting to just kind of stay in our silos and, and not reach across um, multiple aisles in this case. Um, so uh, um, so we, we've covered, you know, those, some of those barriers too. And I think you also mentioned too, um, the consumer, sort of the sexiness of the consumer products. Um, so certainly that's like a, I, I feel like it's a double-edged sword too, where on one hand, the products can be really, really attractive and really polished. But on the other hand, they may sell it to um, analytics firms that want to uh, target you with political ads. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, without really having those protections. So, so yeah. you know, it's so it's interesting. I think it, at least from I know in the academic setting, we I grumble sometimes about oh we've got all these all this paperwork to sort of like run through and all these protocols. But at the same time, that's an additional layer of protection um, that um, you know safeguarding people's data and, yeah. and, and sensitive information. Yeah, um, and I think I mean bringing up that point in terms of the privacy and the confidentiality, which I think for um, health providers, it's huge, right? You know, everything's about protecting the patient and um, protecting the information that they provide us. Um, and what are we going to do with that? And, you know, as someone who trains, you know, psychologists to be, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that kind of conversation. You have to really think about, you know, how are you going to hold this information and how, what, how are you going to treat it? And, you know, when I think of being a clinical psychologist, that to me is a privilege. Like, I have people coming to me telling me things about their lives that they haven't told people, and I get to hold that information. Thank you so much for telling me. And when you provide that level of information to your device, to a company that maybe doesn't um, put that level of importance around the information that's being given to them, that is troubling. And I think a lot of clinicians um, struggle with that, uh, potentially, as a way to, you know, when we think about what are some of the challenges and barriers to getting providers to integrate technology into their practice, right? So, you know, I think, you know, with um, electronic medical records, we have no choice often, right? That's where the field is headed, and our, in our organization is using that, and we're going to use it. But as an independent um, clinician or practitioner, you can in some ways choose how much you're going to integrate that, right? And, and many of us are already doing it from an administrative perspective, right? There's no doubt that almost everybody has some technology that's helping them run their business, you know, their private practice or whatever. But I think, you know, when we begin to ask patients or patients ask us, like, hey, I found this app to monitor 
my sleep patterns or I can just carry my phone with me like I normally do and this app will tell me when I'm starting to cycle into a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think I should use it? Right? Oh, and, what do you say? Yeah. Well, no one's ever asked me that, fortunately. Oh. <laughs> but, but it's a loaded question, right? Yeah. Because, you know, how many of us have actually read line by line the terms and conditions before we say, yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's a, that's a real huge challenge and I think it's it's a barrier for many providers in feeling comfortable to use technology in their practice. And it's also a potential um, limitation for our patients, right? So if we don't know where that information is going, who's going to access it, or what third parties are going to have uh, that level of information, then, you know, I think those are things that we still need to work out. I have no idea how they're going to get worked out or if they will. But I think that that's one of the, the challenges of of bringing a technology. So, so we so thinking about all of the privacy issues, the security issues behind these mm-hmm. uh, apps and devices. Um, it, you know, it's hard to sort of like run through the gamut of education. Like, or do we talk about the terms of conditions of and privacy policies in the session when we only have um, you know a few minutes left? Um, but you know, I've heard on the other camp um, uh, uh, on the other side. I've heard of folks who you know come to me with those questions like, oh, I have a Fitbit. Can I use that to track my sleep for to, as a sort of a marker for bipolar uh, relapse or a man, um, to detect sort of manic episodes? Um, then I then I start saying sort of well, these are the risks. Someone else has your data, and they go, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of we we we. Uh, you know, in the in the healthcare realm, we are so concerned about that because it's been drilled into our heads. But in in on that setting, they are so used to googling for their terms and using free services, uh, maybe even uh, blogging or or uh, t- uh, tweeting about it, which is nice to see. And it's it's great to see folks being able to talk freely more in in this day and age than in the past, uh, overcoming that stigma online. Um, uh, but at the same time, it, it you know, do we recommend these apps or do we prescribe them? Talking with some malpractice insurance carriers, I, I spoke with one, um, one, one lawyer, and, and they said, well, you know, these apps are so low risk, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't seem to. Um, the lawyers don't seem to be concerned about healthcare providers uh, recommending apps. And then when I go to, um, you know, you've heard of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, the US FDA, um, they're even um, not, uh, they're even taking their hands off of uh, certifying these apps. They've said, we've gotten so many requests, we can't go through all these apps. Instead, they're trying to look at certifying uh, the developers or the vendors of these apps. So it's a different approach. Um, so, uh, but um, I think that there can be some middle ground uh, and we can at least point people to the right direction, similar to how we may point folks to self-help books or uh, community classes or, um, um, uh, and to not have to worry about liability <laughs> from, from that from that referral. For sure, and I think yeah. that's liability is something yeah. that I think providers are often concerned about, um, which may not be as big of a concern in the other camp. I don't know, but you know, I think those are all good good points. Uh, you know, and some of the things that I've read is, um, you know, just jumping back to the topic of, you know, how effective are these apps? Um, do, is there any data to back them up? And you know, I think in some some would argue that the, the damage is very low, right? 
um, potentially that they could be helpful, um, but they're probably not going to be harmful. Um, and so I don't. I wonder if that, you know, thinking about your background, sort of as, you know, someone who's familiar with computer science, business background, is that something that you think about as you are developing and implementing different technology-based um, uh, you know, So. Well, that actually might be something that, you know, talk, talking about, like, how can you create your own technology solution? How can you create your own device, your own um, uh, app or website? And and uh, I, I think that the technologies change so much that, you know, our teams have had to rely on external engineers and vendors to sort of tell us that, hey, these are um, the these are the security measures that we have in place. But at the same time, programming is, is the, the way we program apps um, is such that the language has changed so much and the interface has changed so much that there are constantly holes. I'm finding uh, whole security holes and security lapses. Um, if you think about all of the times your Windows computer or your Mac has to update, it's because there are all these different holes and security issues that keep coming up. Um, and it's because these systems are so complex. There's a reason why the New York City subway um, isn't mouse-free, mouse -free, is because there's so many different nooks and crannies for uh, things to just kind of slip through. Um, so I think as an engineer, uh, as a, f well, a former software engineer, um, you know, it's it's daunting, but at the same time, the um, there's a reason why I think you find a lot of medical software and healthcare software uh, to have a much higher cost, especially cost of development or cost of purchase than say your uh, non-FDA approved wellness app du jour, um, where you know they don't care too much about the, uh, privacy. Uh, or security, they just want to go to the market, go to market as fast as possible. Um, I don't know. That's that's how we've been looking at how we develop things. How you mentioned that you've you know created you know these text messaging interventions. How have you created um, these uh, things yeah. that, that people can use? Yeah. So not alone, <laughs> first of all, um, and definitely in collaboration with other clinicians um, who have had to rely to some degree on outside help. Um, and I would say that most of the, the tools that I've used, the digital tools that I've used, are very simple. And part of the reason for that, as some of it is um, because it has to be, and some of it is by design. And part of that is something that you said earlier in terms of, that reminds me that is really important to me, is who's using the tool, right? Um, so one of the things that I'm always thinking about is that it's not just about the technology. So one of the questions that I often get when I give presentations or go to conferences is, do you have an app for that? When are you going to develop an app? Was there an app? You know, and, and I often say, no, and I'm not going to develop an app. And part of the reason for that is because the population that I'm trying to reach, that I'm trying to deliver services to, are not those who are using apps. Um, they use apps, for sure, um, but the apps that they're using are typically WhatsApp, Facebook, um, Twitter, you know, those types of apps, news apps, you know, those kinds of things. They're not, um, and those are just for fun, right? And so for me, it's really thinking about, you know, how can I 
make a tool or work with someone to develop a tool that is simple and and targets the the way that we're using technology, the population, right? And so you mentioned, you know, all the holes that happen in apps and the updates. You know, a lot of the women that I'm working with um, have technology. I mean, it's the way that we, when you look at, you know, technology and who's using, you know, there's old digital divide, um, which essentially just means that, you know, folks who are uh, late adopters or who don't have access to technology. And we've seen that in prior years early on, you know, individuals from lower income, lower education, ethnic uh, diversity backgrounds were not engaging in technology as some of the majority populations. And as time has gone on, that digital divide is not as clearly dividing, right, this camp from this camp. We see that there's a lot of growth. And in fact, there's a lot of growth to the point that populations in our society that were previously not accessing technology because they couldn't afford it or because it just wasn't something that they were doing or the fastest growing, they're using it and they're relying on it entirely. Um, so they, you know, in my case, working with Spanish speaking and Latino communities, you know, they rely on their smartphone for everything. They don't have home computers, they don't have home, you know, broadband, whatever it might be. They just use it for communicating and staying in connection. So that was a long story, but the point that I'm trying to make is that I think that it's really important to think about who your population is and then build your piece, your technology based on that. And so for me, it's really been about creating these very simple, um, easy to use, low cost, very accessible. And to me, text messaging is the current thing that people are using. Um, you know, when I developed the online course, you know, some of the challenges that I would have, and these were pregnant women, were, you know, well, I'm on maternity leave, so I only use the computer at work, so I haven't gone back online. Um, oh, that makes sense, you know, <laughs> or, you know, so, you know, I had to switch over because we, we needed to develop something that was easily accessible. And so working with colleagues who have done that for different populations has been one way to do it. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is if, you know, if we want to disseminate and have it be available more um, widely in our communities, we need to be able to develop things that actual organizations can integrate into their systems quite easily. Um, you know, the text messaging program that I'm using um, is very low cost. Um, I mean, granted, the user has to absorb some of that cost, right, because they're receiving messages. But if an institution or a clinic, let's say, like I'm working with a community health clinic, if they wanted to provide the platform for it, it wouldn't cost them a lot of money to do that. Um, and I think that's important, you know, especially as a researcher, often, you know, we have a reputation for coming in, doing our research, and then picking up and going out, right? And and that's a disservice to the communities that are helping us test and helping us um, inform, you know, how effective are these things that we're developing as researchers and, and clinicians. So, so for me, the, it's always been about collaborating with other psychologists, other folks that are working with outside experts, like software engineers, to develop something that's easy to use, accessible, and low cost, um, yeah. always, so. That's a lot more fun to pick uh, to yeah, learn from other experts sure. too, yeah. um, but you know the digital divide though that's that is definitely one obstacle that we used to think of as as being an issue. But, um, but I think that I this is borrowing from um, another clinical informatics fellow at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Jorge Rodriguez uh, has been looking at translation uh, technologies and translation issues. And he, uh, he recently gave a presentation 
at the American Psychiatric Association about how the digital divide isn't just isn't isn't uh, about devices anymore. It's actually about content, mm-hmm. and can people understand the translations from federally qualified health center uh, web- websites? And gonna, uh, unfortunately, I, th- I think his th- he he's done a, a search on that and found that one, only one fourth of such community health centers had offered Spanish translations, mm-hmm. and Spanish is the most widely uh, used, I'd, I'd say, language outside of English in the United States. Um, so there's that's one digital divide, which is the content. Um, but it's you know interesting to see that text messages, um, there's been a lot of research about that, but now um, I think, I don't know if you've seen this, maybe you can tell me what you think about this. C- companies are taking messaging platforms and being able to say that they can channel it through Facebook or WhatsApp or WeChat or SMS. You pick your text messaging platform, but not only that, if you wanted to have it channeled through voice assistance too. Um, are you seeing uh, platforms like that at all where they can, you can pick your channel, but it's, you, can, you can still use text, uh, send out text messages, and then it can say it sometimes to maybe those who are hard of hearing or... Yeah, I mean, the only way that I've seen that is through artificial intelligence type of technologies um, where, you know, different um, companies or tech companies are using, you know, like Facebook, for example, or some other platform to deliver, you know, content in that way through text messaging, which might be familiar. But I haven't seen a lot of it in that, at least not in practice. Not in practice. Yeah, heard of it. I think I think it's in its infancy, certainly, yeah. and I think it's probably because a lot of these devices aren't completely mainstream, oh, except in the maybe the San Francisco Silicon Valley bubble. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of folks have these devices at yeah. home, um, but um, it's in one of those one hundred dollar uh, nice to haves, but it's not essential. Like like you said with a smartphone, where people are um, accessing essential services um, with that. So so. I, I myself am curious too. What what are you most excited about um, then, in terms of uh, mental health and technology? Um, we we've seen a lot of um, you know opportunities for bridging that digital divide and access issues. Um, of course, uh, companies are coming up with all these new technologies. Um, are, are there things that you and your colleagues t- talk about that um, excite you or that has uh, potential um, for uh, helping people with their uh, addressing mental health issues? Um, no, but we need to talk more. Yeah. <laughs> so no. what, what are the barriers to yeah. that then? Uh, is there something that's... Yeah. No, I mean, I I think what excites me is, uh, you know, something that you mentioned in terms of um, that made me think about, you know, how do we take something that is completely dependent on an algorithm, let's say, right, which a human has to in most cases or not all has to code or some way, right? Um, the content needs to come from an ex- a content expert, which a lot of tech companies have psychologists, mental health providers who are content experts. I've done that before for different technology companies. But I think what excites me the most is thinking about um, really thinking outside of the box in some ways and how can you use technology to really adapt the psychological or mental health services that you want to adapt to the community that you're working with. And I think there are opportunities there to even think about how do you culturally adapt 
this material to the attitudes and beliefs of the community that you want to serve. And, you know, if you look at, you know, like marketing literature, right, and, you know, they do a lot of that work, like what kinds of ads are really going to like pull at the heartstrings of the people that we want to target, right? And really thinking about, you know, you know, if, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly from the work that I do, but if pulling at family, pulling at cultural um, themes that really draw me in, you know, how can we take that and learn from that area, marketing, let's say, and bring it into technology, but then bringing it into mental health technology use, right? And, yeah. and, it, and in some ways, again, it's not going to be perfect because we all prefer to have a human being with us who can embody all of those things, right? So when I meet with clients who are of, you know, Latino background and Spanish speaking, I'm a very different clinician than when I'm meeting with non, you know, Spanish speaking Latino, but, and I can do that, you know, seamlessly because that's who I am and that's the work that I do. But if we don't think, you know, we can really take advantage of technology. I mean, it can read and how you're holding your phone or how you're moving and what kinds of questions you answer and really this, you know, machine learning, you know, we can really use the sophistication of technology to really adapt it even further so that it's more personalized and more aligned with the individuals that we want to reach. And then maybe, maybe there won't be as many barriers even to using that. So that excites me. Like I think of, wow, how cool would that be? You know, whether it's tech, text messaging or virtual reality, whatever it might be, like how do we bring in more of the human element? And I think that's really important because there's a lot of data to suggest that a lot of these technological tools are really more effective if you have this human component, right? So at the end of the day, we're all humans and we want to be social with other individuals and having that human component, I think is really critical and exciting. So, so the human component, is that like, so what, do you mean having someone in person or, because I know you mentioned the cultural yeah. elements and making sure that the it, it's culturally salient right. and making sure that it's actually relevant, uh, such as um, I had a friend who, uh, tried to develop a coaching app for uh, dieting, and she had found that uh, Southeast Asian users uh, of this app didn't take take this app on because the the recipes and the meals were all westernized. They wanted more rice-based dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the kind of sort of human yes. element that you're thinking about? Yeah, in some ways, and, and the culture adaptation more so. I mean, we see that in patient care. You know, you think about diabetes management, right? And mm-hmm. eat this, you know, this much of this food, and that, you know, the plate, and you know, where are the tortillas in there? They're not. They're nowhere there, right? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, those are some of the cultural adaptations that you can make. At that, I think that technology really allows you to plug in those pieces for whoever's going to be sitting in front of you that day or whoever's going to click on that app, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one, I mean, food is a great example in terms of thinking culturally. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, well, uh, the hope the hope is that we can start with just the language first. Right, yeah. And then we'll, we'll extend that and make it even more, uh, making it a richer experience yeah. uh, with, with um uh, food, culture, or idioms, yeah. and things like that to make yeah. it more relevant. But what are you excited? I'm I'm interested from your background. Like, what what are some of the things that you foresee that excite you? You know, it 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 might sound banal, actually. Uh, the we're seeing a lot of technologies out there um, that are not yet mainstream. I think in in practice, and it's because. Um, the financial difficulties prevent it. Um, there are a lot of uh, resource issues and, and constraints. Um, and so what I've 
come to sort of see as um, sort of a barrier for mental health and technology is actually that the fact that technology is only 20%. The 80-20 rule, technology is 20% of the solution, but the organizational change and the policies, that's the 80% that uh, should change. So I'm excited to see if um, uh, we see more uh, financial incentives, things to encourage the adoption of these tools. Right now we are seeing in the physical health uh, they, physical health realm, um, all the other specialties, internal medicine, rheumatology, endocrinology, surgery, et cetera, they've had the benefit of um, lots of, well, billions of dollars of uh, incentives from the government to implement uh, electronic health record systems, sharing data, being able to click and it automatically sends to uh, uh, another provider, things like that. Those, those are, th that sounds like it should be common, but it's not in the addiction space, long-term care space, nursing homes, um, individual psychiatry practices uh, and psychology practices. Just imagine if you, as um, a practicing clinician, um, would talk with someone and for the first time, but then you're able to pull up all of this uh, information about them from other health systems. That had that's happened one time. We had a we had someone come in and they said that. No, you know, I've not had any issues with drinking and I've not had any issues with uh, drug use. And then we find a note from an emergency room that apparently they plowed their car into a light pole and they were arrested. So that changes the diagnosis quite drastically, I think. Um, and so could we improve care that way by having a more accurate diagnosis uh, in the first place? And you know, use, using technologies that are already in place from other industries and other specialties too. Um, and, and so hopefully, you know, I would love to see that implemented uh, in the behavioral uh, science realm. Um, and, and so advocating for that is important and uh, making the field um, be uh, conducive to that would be important. So for instance, the substance abuse 42 CFR, that's a law that prevents us from sharing information about addiction uh, issues um, in some in certain settings. Um, that's a huge roadblock, too. So that's another policy issue, too. So that's what I'm excited for. Actually, it's not so much technology, but um, how can we implement those changes? Yeah, at a system level. Yeah, right? systems yeah. nationally, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and just to make things better for uh, uh, for clinicians and um, uh, patients too. Yeah, I mean, in some ways you're talking some about like the buy-in, right? Um, from the organizational level, which I think has a, a large impact on the individual, like the provider level, you know, giving providers the opportunity to engage with technology in that way as their um, system of care, right? And sometimes that's a barrier for some providers who really do want to engage with technology and see the benefits of it and have plans on how to do that, but their system doesn't allow them to do that uh, for some of these logistical policy reasons. I will say, though, it's exciting to see that um, 
that we have so many different pockets of experimentation and innovation. Um, and so um, sometimes the cutting edge research isn't always done at, at larger um, brand name institutions. It's, it's at you know, a, a local community health center or maybe a different university that um, is lesser known. But that's, that's interesting to see. And I think um, keeping track of all that information is important. Um, too, uh, and so that's that's we we are sort of serving as that hub yeah. uh, for that too. How how can uh, people? Because um, I know we're you know coming to the end of our time too. But um, any any last words or any how how can people reach you uh, if they have any uh, questions or maybe they want to access some of the PDFs or some of the work that you've done in the past? Yeah. Um. Well, I work for Palo Alto University. <laughs> That's one way. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, email me. But I think it would be great to, to continue this conversation and to, you know, really think about creative ways of implementing some of this into practice. I think, you know, your comment about that sometimes these things develop in, um, you know, just in small institutions or clinics, and some of that may be driven by the need. You know, it's just, um, I, I always, this is my own philosophy that when you're desperate, you get really creative, right? Um, and I think that a lot of times that's where we might see some of these innovations, um, at least the ideas. There may not be the resources to develop them, but the ideas are there because the need is so great, um, right? And I think that's exciting as well. And I think thinking about ways to support those institutions or those, I mean, they're so small, there may not even be institutions, but to, to support those organizations and saying, hey, if you have an idea, we'd love to support that we have the institutional or the organizational structure to build that idea out into actuality so that we can improve care. Well, Palo Alto University too is fo is, is focused especially not... on psychology or are there yes. other, so it's, 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 that's, it's, major concentration. Yes, it's a 100% psychology institution. Um, and I think one of the, the strengths of being there is that there is an interest in innovation, there is an interest in patient care, and um, you know, we train you know, PhD, PsyD, master's level mental health providers, undergraduates. Um, and so I think that that's exciting in of itself because, because it's not huge, um, there's still space to be creative and say, well, why don't we just test it this way um, and not be so grant-driven, which is great in many levels, but can also be limiting in other levels, so. That's exciting, yeah, and especially yeah. since Palo Alto University is so, uh, close to, I mean, the yeah, tech hub of technology, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Silicon Valley and Stanford University yeah. is nearby. Um, so um, it was, definitely is uh, such a, so what a gem. So yeah, yeah. Thank you. One last question. Yeah. We have time for one last question. I'd love to hear just maybe as a closing question, you know, how do you, because you're at a much larger institution, right? Um, how do you see the larger institutions um, helping at the community level because I think that that is you know there's a difference right you know community agencies wish that they had the resources that larger institutions have to support some of this work so how do you see the two coming together I think that there's much more of a, a, a movement towards that patient uh, centered sort of uh, research so the federal government for instance created an agency just for that too to help fund the type of research um, but I, I, I'm seeing now that larger health systems have a huge incentive to to engage with the community uh, because 
um, they they uh, they want to spread their uh, their education is one one issue, uh, but also to sort of uh, build up the community resources too. So I can't say a whole lot uh, about what UCSF is doing behind the scenes, except that there's some major projects in the works. But um, certainly the fact that the UCSF in amidst San Francisco, they've been able to um, support researchers at the Veterans Affairs Hospital, the health system, and also the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Um, and share ideas amongst all the departments. I think that that's um, one major way of how they've been able to support the community too. Uh, and then from my perspective, I've been at the University of California for 15 years, so being able to support um, my colleagues and other um, uh, 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 collaborators at other UCs has been uh, an amazing experience. Yeah. So. Well, that's exciting. I look forward to seeing when they uncover what they've developed. Yes, so. absolutely. So, um, Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.